Today's scripture reading is going to be from John 8, uh, 48 through 59, I believe. Give you time to turn to your Bibles if you have them. The Jews answered him, Are we not right in saying that you are a Samaritan and have a demon? Jesus answered, I do not have a demon, but I honor my father, and you dishonor me. Yet I do not seek my own glory. There is one who seeks it, and he is the judge. Truly, truly, I say to you, if anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died, as did the prophets. Yet you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham, who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, If I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my Father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were not to say, let me turn the page. <laughs> if I were not to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do, but I do know him and keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he should see my day. He saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, You are not yet fifty years old, and have you seen Abraham? Jesus said to them, Truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple. That was a reading of God's word. You may be seated. Well, today we're back in the Gospel of John, which is, I think, pretty appropriate coming out of Easter, our particular passage this week. Uh, we, we saw two weeks ago that, that Jesus entered, entered Jerusalem among the praise and the adoration of the people. And, and even though he was just a peasant carpenter from Nazareth, nothing good comes out of Nazareth, they said. And though we know that Jesus was incredibly humble, so just a, a peasant carpenter, incredibly humble, yet we, we see whenever he enters into Jerusalem, he demands and accepts and claims that he deserves the praise and the adoration of the people who are gathered there. They sing, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said, teacher or rabbi, rebuke your disciples. And he says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And then last week we saw uh, that, on e that Easter was about two concrete facts. The Easter that occurred is his trial, his suffering, his death, his burial, and then his resurrection in Jerusalem after those crowds had sung praise to him. They turned around just a few days later, many of them, and cried out for his crucifixion. We saw that Easter, his resurrection, the power of Easter rests in two concrete facts. That is, one, that the grave is empty and Jesus is risen. That is a concrete, historic fact. That is one of, like, you, it, it can be difficult to believe, but it is 
indisputable. The authorities of the time could not claim that his body was hidden somewhere. Nobody could, convert, could, could come up with a reasonable story against the one story that all the disciples, all the hundreds of people, I think I mentioned 5,000, I meant 500 people last week, the hundreds of people that saw Jesus post his resurrection all claimed that he had died and that he had risen again on the third day and they had seen him and nobody was able to dispute that fact. There, the power of Easter, the power of Christianity, the power of Christ, the reason that we are gathered here today, the week after Easter, is number one, the fact of the empty grave. And secondly, the fact, the concrete fact that God's Holy Spirit comes to dwell within those who are his. Those are two concrete facts. You see, your faith, if you're a believer in Christ and this morning, if you're considering the claims of Christianity, our faith, the faith of Christianity, does not rest upon conjecture or blind steps out into the dark. Our faith rests upon the fact of the empty grave, the risen Christ, and his gift of his Holy Spirit that comes to dwell in those who are his. And when you take those together, you get a different picture of Jesus than many of us might have. Yes, Jesus was kind and gentle. Jesus was humble and he was lowly. He taught us about loving our neighbor. He told us to turn the other cheek. But he wasn't just a man, a teacher, modeling a different kind of life. He came, the son of God, as a man. He came as the king of kings and the Lord of lords. Not just, not just to show us a different way, though there is a different way, but to make a new way. Jesus didn't come just to show us a different way. He came to make a new way. He came, God himself, to bring us back to God. He came to redeem and to remake us. I want you to hear that this morning. If you're here this morning and you're considering the claims of Christianity, Maybe you've been on the sidelines for a while. You're trying to figure out, what, what is this Christianity thing about? Maybe a friend invited you or a spouse or a family member, and you're here. I don't really know if I'm on, fully on board with this Christianity thing. I want you to hear that. Jesus came to redeem, that is to buy you back, and to remake you. And if that's not true... There's no reason for us to gather in this gym and worship this morning. There's no reason for any Christians anywhere in this world to gather and praise his name. If that's not true, and it is true, if that's not true, there's no reason for us to sing praises to him. He came to bear our sin and to conquer death for us. His glory, the glory of Christ, which is the greatness and the goodness of God. His being worthy of praise and worship wasn't something that was just tacked onto the end of the story of his life, like it was separate, like his death and resurrection. His glory is shown all throughout his life. It was shown by the Old Testament of predictions, prophecies, and promises of who the Messiah would be and how he would come, which he fully fulfilled. His glory was shown in his amazing birth of a young virgin. His glory was shown in the manner and in the quality of his life. No one has lived and taught and spoke like he did. His glory was shown in the authority and the wisdom of his teaching. And his glory was shown in the miracles and the healings that he performed. Jesus was never shy about who he was. 
though he was gentle and lowly. He said this, he said, I am from the Father. He said, I am one with the Father, speaking about God. He said, I am the only way to the Father. He said, the Father himself seeks, which we read in this passage, seeks to glorify me. He said, I am doing the works of the Father, and I am only doing the works that I hear him and see him doing around me. And it's incredible to see how the people and the religious leaders responded to him. They would gather in great numbers to hear his teaching and to see his miracles, but they would ridicule and scatter when he claimed divine rights. Over and over again, we see that. The crowd gathers to see his miracles. They gather to hear his teaching, but whenever he claims to be God, whenever he claims to be divine, they ridicule him and they scatter. And you would think that the Jews would have known better. They had all the proof of who he was in front of them. All the things I just named. All the Old Testament prophecies that predicted and led up to him. The signs of God's spirit upon him. The miracles that he performed. The authority that he had. The life that he lived that was not like anybody else. They had all the proofs in front of them. And yet the rebellion and dogged independence of humanity run so deep that they rejected him. You would think that we would know better too. We have even more proof than they did of who he was. We have the proof of the empty grave and his resurrection. We have the Spirit of God that indwells those who are his. We have the testimony of people who have come to Jesus and have seen their hearts and lives changed. In our text, which we're we can't dive into detail because our text actually goes all the way back to verse 12 and all the way to the end of chapter 8. Jesus declares in several ways who he is, and we see how people, especially the religious people of his day, respond and how that connects to us as well. We're going to look at the, what the claims of Jesus that he makes in this passage mean and what some of the implications are for us. First of all, let's look at this passage. We're going to look at the beginning up at verse 12, then we'll look at the end down the passage that we just read, particularly verse 58. We're going to see Jesus claims authority and centrality. Look at the claims that Jesus makes about himself at the beginning and the ending of this section. There's no question of what he's saying. We can see we can see there's no question about what Jesus is claiming, that he claims full authority and complete centrality or the right to centrality in our lives. We can see that because we see how the ways that those Jews react. Remember, many of these are not his enemies. Many of these are his followers. They would consider him their rabbi or their teacher. They would consider them, themselves followers of his. He would be a, a leader to them. Not all of them were enemies. I want us to see how these claims, when Jesus makes these claims, when he says, I am the light of the world and I am that I am, that those claims are confrontational. These claims of Jesus, if we hear them correctly, are, are confrontational. They can be uncomfortable. That's because they have to do with his authority and his centrality in our lives. Who should have authority in your life? That's really the question that's kind of underlying all this. Who should have authority in your life? Who gets to determine or who should determine what is true and what's not true? 
what or who should be central in your life? Do you get to decide what is central in your life? Or does someone else get to decide that? What is Jesus claiming here? He claims authority. If you have your Bible, look in John chapter 8, verse 12. Again, Jesus spoke to them saying, I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. So the Pharisees said to him, you're bearing witness about yourself. Your testimony is not true. Down in verse 17, this is what Jesus says, in your law it is written that the testimony of two people is true. I am the one who bears witness about myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness about me. They said to him, therefore, where is your father? Jesus answered, you know neither me nor my father. If you knew me, you would know my father also. These words he spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple, but no one arrested him because his hour had not yet come. Now Jesus is speaking here in the temple to these Jews, and it's during the Feast of Tabernacles. That was a feast that was ordained by God where they would remember God bringing them through, out of Egypt through the wilderness to the promised land, but particularly their time, how God led them through the wilderness or through the desert. He had just delivered them from Egypt, through, guided them through the Red Sea, which had parted, brought them on the, to the other side. And he guided them through the desert for 40 years. He provided manna from heaven. He provided water out of a rock. He guided them by a cloud, his own Shekinah or his glory by day and a cloud of fire by night. He would shade them during the day and provide warmth and light for them when this desert got cold and scary during the night. And during this feast, the people would remember that by building these temporary booths or tabernacles out in, the, out in their outside. And they would sleep during this feast in those tabernacles that they had built to remember that God had guided them in temporary places through the wilderness by his hand. And then at the end of the first day of this feast, they would light these giant candelabras in what was called the court of women here in the temple. They would light these two candelabras that were so large and provide so much light that it would actually illuminate that part of the city of Jerusalem. It could be seen for all around the area. And they would sing and they would dance and they would play music and they would rejoice because God had led them through the wilderness, their ancestors, with a pillar of cloud by day and fire by night, keeping them and protecting them safely throughout the whole desert. And it's in that place, with a picture of God's Shekinah glory shining behind him in these bright candelabras, that Jesus stood up and he said this, He said, I am the light of the world. I alone am the light of the world. That light that shone out of the cloud by night, that warmed and brightened the path for your ancestors that you're celebrating, that was me. The rock that gave them the water that was struck, that was me. The manna or the bread that came down from heaven, that was me. I am the bread of life. I am the water. I am the light of the world. That is me. 
Jesus is saying, the light that lit your, their, your, your ancestors' path, that was me. I am the only source of light and warmth and protection. It does not exist anywhere outside of me. And he said, whoever follows me. You see, it doesn't happen automatically. You don't get the light and the warmth and the protection of God just automatically. It comes from those who follow him as the Israelites followed that light through the wilderness. When the cloud would move, they would move. When the cloud would stop, they would stop. They didn't know the way. They couldn't protect themselves. They were just a slave people released from Egypt. They didn't come with great armories. They didn't come with great armies. How are they going to protect themselves? How they can provide for themselves? They didn't bring enough food for a 40-year trip. They were in the desert, for goodness sakes. They couldn't even grow food out there. He says, whoever follows me. You see, you don't get the light of God just because of your ethnicity or just because of your religious background. You only get the light of God if you follow him alone. There's no other path. He says, I came here for you, but you exist for me. I came here for you, but you exist for me. I am the light. Those who follow the light will not walk in darkness. See, it's a binary choice. There's no middle ground with Jesus. There's no following him from a distance. There's, there is either a recognition of his authority and a submission to him, or there is darkness. There's a recognition of who he is and his authority and a following him and saying what you say, what you say to do, where you say to go is what I will do and where I will go, or there is confusion and lostness and death. He said, those who follow me will not walk in darkness, but will have the lights of life. Light means guidance. It means that there's a hope, a future, a way out, a way forward. Like for those Israelites, as long they knew, no matter how scary the wilderness is, no matter how long it seems that we are living here, year after year out in the desert, as long as that cloud is there, providing us shade by day and light and warmth by night, but more important than that, providing us pr protection and assurance and direction. As long as that is there, we're okay. There's a hope, a future, a way towards true life. So Jesus stands in front of those candelabras and says, I am the light of the world. Those who follow me will not walk in darkness, but will walk in the light of life. Whenever he claims that, the Jews who hear him, there is no mistaking his claim. Jesus here is claiming that he alone is the ultimate authority in the universe. How are you to think about the world? How are you to think about yourself? How are you to think about what's important in life? How do you think about how to think about your, your gifts and abilities that you have? How are you to think about your weaknesses? How to think about your family upbringing and your career choices? How are you to think about finances and the gifts and abilities that God has given you? How are you to think about those things? Jesus says that he alone is able to help us 
to interpret life. That's what he's saying. Jesus alone is able to help us to interpret life. And he says that he alone is able to help us to interpret ourselves even, to understand who we are and what we're about, what our life should be about, what we should be doing. Jesus says that he alone has the authority to help us interpret life and to interpret ourselves and to help us learn how we're to think about ourselves. Some of, you, some of us here, uh, we're on different ends of the spectrum. Uh, some, of, some of us here, man, we're really confident in ourselves and our abilities. We've shown by our track record in life, maybe with finances, maybe with business, maybe with our schooling, maybe with our family, maybe with our, our physique. In some ways, man, we have proven ourselves that we can do things, and we think pretty highly of ourselves. Then there are those of us in this room who think really lowly about ourselves. And you don't, your deepest fears that you are constantly trying to push back, you feel pulling you down deeper into darkness, is that you really don't account for much. Your life doesn't matter. You are unimportant, forgotten, incapable, unworthy. And only Jesus can come in and say, you know what? Those of you who think that you are really awesome, you're not as awesome as you thought you were. And to those who think they're on the bottom, you know what? You are far more loved than you ever thought that you were. And because I alone am light, I alone am the authority, I'm the one who gets to determine your value, not your performance, not your career, not your family, not how put together your children are or were, not according to how, what a, how large your house is or how nice the car that you drive is, how well you've done with finances or how you have royally done, done totally messed the whole thing up. He says, only I, because I alone in the light of the world can guide you and I alone have the authority to tell you your true value, and your value is high because I love you. That's why I came. I came to the cross. I went through death and was risen again because I put value on you that's not based upon your performance, the things that you have done and that you have not done, even the worst sins that you've committed. I put value on you and provide a way because I love you. That's where your value comes in life. How are you to think about life otherwise? Either that you're always too high or too low or you're ping-ponging back and forth like my history has been ping-pong back and forth between lows and highs according to how well I happen to feel or actually how good I think I did today. What a horrible horrible, herky-jerky life to live in. And Jesus says, I alone have authority. And I put value on you. And if I am yours and you are mine and you follow me, I will lead you out of the desert and wilderness into the promised land. And you will not be lost because as long as I am here and I will always be with you, even to the end of the age, as long as I am here, you've got hope and life and help 
and a future. See, this is, though, this is where the rubber meets the road for 21st century Americans and how we interact with Jesus. This is one reason why so many people who claim Christianity don't actually look like Jesus because it's one thing to be around Jesus, just like this crowd was, to, to acknowledge him to some extent. You're willing to consider him rabbi or a teacher. You're even willing to consider him a leader. But when, it, when it, he comes and he says, I alone must be your leader because I am the king and the Lord. When he says, I alone get to determine how you think about life and how you think about yourself. If in any way your will, your thinking, your hopes, your dreams, your conceptions about your life and what it should be about, if in any way they don't align with what I say, you are the one who must move. Whenever, that, whenever we hear that, we 21st century Americans, you know what happens? We want to respond like this crowd did. They said, hey, where is your father? Who are you? What you're saying is not true. Later on, he said, who the sun sets free is free indeed. And they said, hey, we've never even been enslaved. We're free. You know what they were doing? They were equivocating. They're trying to get out from underneath its claims of authority to try to make any argument they can in order to try to get out from underneath those claims. And we do the same thing. You do the same thing. What are ways that you're trying to equivocate regarding Jesus' authority over you? You see, it's one thing to think about Jesus' authority in generalities. It's another thing when it crosses the border of those tender, guarded parts of our lives. What ways are you trying to make arguments to get out from underneath Jesus' directions to you? What ways are you building arguments to say, man, I would confess Christ as Lord. I would bow to him. I would believe this whole cross and resurrection thing, man. Uh, and if you would just have given me more proof, or if Christians weren't such hypocrites, or if the church hadn't done such terrible things in their past, those arguments, hey, I can sigh with a lot of those things. There are a lot of Christians who are hypocrites, including me. The church, including this church, has done a lot of terrible things. But don't equivocate to try to get out from underneath Jesus' authority. He alone is King of kings and Lord of lords. Bow to him. What about your life focus, your life direction? Maybe you know. Maybe you know, you're a Christian and you're not a Christian, and you know Jesus Christ wants you to go in a different direction in your life. You're making decisions right now. You're going in a way that you know he does not want you to go. You try to equivocate and get out from underneath his claims upon you. It might be issues of morality or sexuality or your finances. You want to equivocate and get out from underneath. You want to... You want to kind of distract Jesus and distract the conversation from about whether if he is king and he is Lord, then he gets to call the shots. He alone is the light of the world. Is there something in particular that you know that you shouldn't or mustn't do anymore? Is there something in particular that he's told you to do that you haven't done or you're not doing? You're not going to see more light until you follow the light he's already given you. Go back to the place where you stopped obeying him. 
Repent and turn. Obey what he has told you to do. I promise you, you'll see more light. Do you believe that Jesus Christ has full authority? Do you live like he's in full control, not just of you, but the universe? Do you try to control things instead? Do you fret over things that are both small and large? Jesus alone is the light of the world. He has full authority. Believe in him, submit to him, follow him. No matter how dark the desert may be around you, and I promise you, he has a hope and a future for you going forward. But Jesus just quick, very quickly, Jesus doesn't just claim full authority. Jesus claims centrality. That's something different than full authority. Look at the end of this section in John 8, verse 52. Jesus said to them, now we know that you have a demon. The Jews said to him, sorry, now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died as did the prophets that you say, if anyone keeps my word, he will never taste death. Are you greater than our father Abraham who died? And the prophets died. Who do you make yourself out to be? Jesus answered, if I glorify myself, my glory is nothing. It is my father who glorifies me, of whom you say he is our God. But you have not known him. I know him. If I were to say that I do not know him, I would be a liar like you. But I do know him and I keep his word. Your father Abraham rejoiced that he would see my day, and he saw it and was glad. So the Jews said to him, you're not yet 50 years old, and have you seen Abraham? Here's the payoff verse. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, before Abraham was, I am. So they picked up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out of the temple What Jesus is doing is he's claiming utter uniqueness and centrality and worship. They said, are you greater than Abraham? And Jesus says these things about himself. He says, God the Father glorifies me. And he says, I existed before Abraham. In fact, not only that, he says, he uses the phrase or the wording, I am. Now, through this whole section leading up to this, Jesus has used the wording, I am he, which points back to, without going to, too much detail, a key passage, a section of the prophet Isaiah, where God kept saying, I am he, I am he. He's talking about the Messiah and salvation. He said, I am he, but now he gets to the end. And when they ask if he's greater than Abraham, he declares, not only is he greater than Abraham, but he claims the term I am. Now, whenever they heard this, the reason they picked up the stones to throw it at him is because that was the name that God had given himself when Moses went to get, when Moses appeared before God and God appeared before him in the burning bush. And he said, go to the Israelites, go to the Jews, go to Pharaoh and tell them to let my people go. And he says, who am I to say sent me? Whenever I go there, who, who am I supposed to say sent me? And he says, tell them I am that I am sent me. That's the only explanation we get of who God is. He says, you are, don't quite under, you cannot understand. I can't tell you my name because I always existed. I am that I am. Before you existed, I am. Before I thought the world into being, I am. Before you were born, I am. And after you die, I am. And after the, the world is, is changed and the universe is consumed, I am that I am that I am. He said, that is my memorial 
title or covenant name forever. He says, I am the pre-existent one. I am the creator and I'm the only self-existent one. And then Jesus says, whenever he appears before the Jews, he says, I am that I am. I don't revolve around Abraham and I don't revolve around Moses and I don't revolve around you. I don't revolve around any great man or woman or family or nation before they all were. I am that I am. I don't just have authority because I am the greatest or the most powerful. I have authority because I am that I am. All things come from me, and I, therefore, must be central to all things. What he's saying is, when Jesus stands before these Jews and he says, I am, before Abraham was, I am, he says, all things exist for me, and they exist by me. For by, all thi- by him, all things were created in heaven and earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, what we should hear when we hear Jesus say, I am that I am, when we hear that he before all things he was, whenever we hear that all thrones and dominions exist by him and for him, that he is before all things, and in him all things hold together, you know what? You and I should feel a little bit crowded by that statement. You should. You should feel a bit crowded when you hear Jesus say that. I should feel a bit crowded when I hear Jesus say that. We should all feel a bit crowded about when Jesus says that. If his authority over us doesn't get us, his centrality will. Because what he's saying is he doesn't just get to call all the shots in my lives, in our lives, in my life, in your life. He's saying I am the ultimate reality around which your life must revolve. Our relationship, your relationship to him, how central he is to us, to every part of us, to our thoughts, to our words, our actions, our identities, our intentions, our values, our hopes, our dreams, how all of those things align and center on him determine everything. He promises ultimate joy if we follow him. He says that later on in this gospel. But before you and I can experience that joy, we've got to feel a little bit crowded. Because Jesus is, is telling us that following him calls for a reordering of our lives. Does your life reflect the centrality of Jesus? Would your friends, your family, your kids, the truth tellers, your business contacts, would your business contacts say so? Is your life just influenced by Jesus and his word? Or is your life, every part of your being, dominated by Jesus and his word? There's a huge difference between those two words. Influenced by Jesus or dominated by Jesus are two very different words. What areas of your life, just want you to think about it. What areas of your life are not centered around him this morning? 
They may be some good or seemingly neutral things, but they don't have Jesus and worship of him as their ends. Did you know that everything can be worshiped to Jesus? Your work, your family, your school, even your recreation can be and should be centered on him and worship to him. Because he alone is, I am that I am. He alone deserves to be the central, the dominating factor in our lives. Do you believe this morning that because Jesus alone is, I am that I am, that joy and peace and fulfillment lie only in a life dominated and centered on him? Do you believe that? That alone is where life and joy and peace and fulfillment lie. But before we walk that path, or as we walk that path, maybe the, the next step or the first step for you this morning in walking that path is saying, these are the areas I know that Jesus, the King of Kings, I'm not reflecting his authority, and I'm not, are not dominated and built around him alone as central. And I know that I need to confess that. I know I need to own that. I know I need to believe that joy and peace and love and fulfillment are only found in his authority in his centrality in my life. Here's the good news. No matter how royally you flub that up, and we all have, no matter how hard you have run the other way, some of you in this room, you're a believer in Christ, but you've been running from him in your own way. Maybe the people around you don't even know it, but you've been running from him so hard. No matter what sin you've done, no matter how you strayed, no matter how you spit in his face and rejected and rebelled against his authority and his centrality, you see Jesus Christ stretching his arms on the cross, bleeding to cover that sin. And only by repentance and faith, that's all it takes. Can you receive the light of his forgiveness and his power to enable you to change? You don't have to change yourself. He'll change you for you. Just bow your knee to him this morning. I'm going to pray. The band's going to come up. We're going to sing a song together. We're going to celebrate communion together. That's uh, uh, the meal, the broken body, and the shed blood of Jesus Christ. There'll be a station on each side. You can gather as you see fit on either, on either side, come forward as they, after they get ready. And take the bread and the juice and return back to your seat. We're going to celebrate this morning that the one who is central and authoritative took death for us, took our sin for us, and offers new life in return. It's a bargain that's too good to be true. And it can only be true in Jesus Christ. We're going to celebrate that this morning. Father, we thank you for your son, Jesus, the preexistent one, 
who with you through eternity, with your Holy Spirit, has been and will be, I am that I am. We recognize your authority in our lives. We recognize your rightful centrality in our lives. We pray that you would help us, Lord, in our weaknesses, that you would forgive us of our sins, that you would cleanse our consciences, that you would fill us with your spirit, that we might walk in newness of life, a life that reflects the authority and centrality of Jesus Christ for his glory and our joy. Amen.